Welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that usually brings the global economy to you. We are technically on a break. The next season of Stephanomics starts in April. But I got a chance to sit down with the rock star French economist, Thomas Piketty, to talk about his new book, Capital and Ideology, which has just come out in English. I thought you might want to listen in. You'll remember the fuss about his first book, Capital in the 21st Century, with its sweeping analysis of the rise and fall and rise again of global inequality. That best-selling book was over 700 pages long. A lot of people only pretended to have read it, but it did inspire an enormous amount of debate about wealth and inequality and the causes of our economic discontent. And that was six years ago, before Brexit and before the election of Donald Trump. Now this new book from Piketty is even longer, nearly 1,100 pages. I started by asking him what else was different about it. First of all, thanks for your invitation. I have learned a lot from all the discussion after the publication of Capital in the 21st Century, and I have come to realize you know, some of the many limitations that, the, that, that this previous book of mine had. And, and probably the main two limitations was that my previous book was too much uh, centered on uh, Western countries, Western Europe, North America, uh, a little bit on Japan. But this new book has takes a much broader a global view on inequality regime. I, I, I talk about uh, India, I talk about Brazil, I talk about uh, China, and I put the, the entire history of inequality regime into a much broader uh, uh, historical comparative perspective, the impact of, of, of colonialism. And I, I, this is something that was really missing from my previous book. And in relation to this, I put much more emphasis to ideology, political discourse and systems of justification of different levels of inequality and equality. Because I think in the end, this is really the, the key driving force behind uh, changes in inequality regime, which is something I did not uh, perceive as clearly at the time I, I wrote uh, Capital in the 21st Century. And, and I think this is what makes this book uh, uh, more interesting, better, uh, I think more enjoyable to read. And so if you read only one, uh, please, please read this <laughs> Those one. of us who've already read the first, we don't get that. Yeah, well, that I'm choice. not sure everybody read the first, but uh, for those who you know, did not read the first, I think, you know, please pick this one. I mean, what is interesting, I think there was a lot, some of the criticism of the, of the other book was that you had, you focused on the, uh, the mechanics of mm-hmm. inequality and then you also looked at a lot of history, but maybe there was that some of the politics was was missing. And I guess what's most striking about this is that you are tr- making an argument that it's not just, say, World War One and World War Two that gave us that moment of where societies became more equal after many, many years of, of uh, becoming less equal, that there were other things going on. So I guess that's interesting. We were just talking earlier about the Sweden example. I think the idea that... Um, that ideology has helped change countries, make them more egalitarian. And it's not just that Sweden is in itself a very egalitarian sort of kind of country. Yes, exactly. So if you take the example of Sweden, or actually the example of the United States, you know, World War One was not so important in delivering uh, changes. And what was most important was more uh, uh, the... the 
political mobilization in the case of Sweden and how the, the you know the social democrats managed to completely change uh, the the very ideological and institutional structure of, of Swedish society, which until 1911 was was uh, based on a very extreme form of sacralization of property rights, with voting rights at the time were were uh, uh, rising very strongly with the size of your property. You could have up to 100 votes for very rich people and, and in several dozen Uh, Swedish municipalities, you even had this situation where one individual had more than half of the vote and so was a perfectly uh, you know, legal uh, dictator. And, and so this is an example illustrating both that the, the ideology of property and its constitutionalization can go very far in history and also that these things can change uh, through peaceful means. And in the case of Sweden, it was mostly... Uh, 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 political mobilization and 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 the, you know social democrats winning power in 1932 and and putting the state capacity of the country to the service of a completely different political project. In the case of the U.S., the Great Depression played a major role. In, in, in but but it's more than that. It's it's uh, well first financial crisis will happen again, so it's not World War One or World War Two. It's uh, you know the Great Depression played a bigger role. I think to transform. The perception in the U.S. and than the, than the war of, uh, of World War One, which was mostly a European war and, and did not have so much impact on, on, on the U.S., much less than in Europe, uh, and there was a, a gradual intellectual and political process, which already before World War One led the U.S. to create a federal income tax and a federal estate tax, and the, the views that you need to control the level of concentration of, of power. Which And you see a similar kind of movement today in the U.S. with a bigger fraction in particular of the young generation who are talking about uh, socialism or who want to hear about how you put limits to the power of uh, billionaires and the concentration of wealth. And I think in order to understand this kind of historical episodes that we see today in the U.S., which sometimes people are very surprised to hear that, but if you put it in this broader... Uh, uh, historical and, and ideological perspective, you realize that you know you have this ideological cycle. There is also a process of overall learning in history about justice. So in this book, you know, I'm trying. Maybe I'm a bit naive, but I think you know, I think today's societies are, even though there's been rising inequality in recent decades, are much more equal than what they were a century ago, and themselves were more equal to some extent than one or two centuries before. So there is a long-term process of going toward equality, toward a form of learning of justice. And, and this has been tremendously successful. You know, in the 20th century, the reduction of inequality in the long run, not only is a reality, but is what allowed for increased uh, social mobility, increased economic prosperity, uh, access to education, culture, And, you know, I think this process in the long run uh, can continue if we draw the right lessons from uh, history. And it's interesting when you look at the U.S. election, I mean, because if people think that everything's going seriously wrong and there's people on the right and the left who think, think the mm. world has gone to hell, then you have to have, as a politician, you have to have answers that seem radical enough to respond to that. So potentially you've had... Uh, Elizabeth Warren or uh, Bernie Sanders actually have quite a radical platform. Um, but that very radicalism then means maybe that people step back from it in the polls and say, well, I'm a bit frightened of this because it's so different. So I'm just interested, do you think the path 
the best path is going to be through sort of gradual change, you know, slightly more progressive taxes, a few more wealth taxes, or do you think it will take a more fundamental questioning, at least in one country or another? I think first that Warren and Sanders are not radical. They are moderate social democrats, you know, by, by European standards. Well, in their own, within the ideology of the US. Right, but the ideology of the US is itself uh, changing and, you know, has been different in the, in the past. You know, remember that the US is actually the country which invented very strictly progressive taxation of income and inherited wealth in the 20th century. So it's not, there's no national uh, determinism which makes a country, you know, in love with inequality or in love with equality. These things can change uh, very quickly. Uh, in the case of the US, you know, what I find very striking is a very low uh, electoral uh, participation of the uh, lower and, and lower middle uh, socioeconomic groups, you know, who just don't participate uh, in elections and this is true for the, 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 the irrespective of uh, race or color you know the poor white the poor black the poor latino don't just don't vote so why is it that they don't vote well maybe partly because they feel that what is being proposed and what has been proposed in recent decades both by the republican and the democrat is not really uh, changing anything for them and i think the having policies uh, on the minimum wage on uh, uh, public universities and the funding of education, on uh, reducing inequality that are, uh, you know, a bit clearer than the policy advocated by, uh, by Clinton or Biden or Obama, you know, can be a way to get people uh, to, uh, to vote. And, you know, when you have such a low participation by the, by the lower economic groups, you know, pretending that we should just uh, stay in, uh, you know, keep business as usual and keep proposing what we've been proposing in recent decades as the only possible political strategy uh, does not strike me as, uh, as, as very, very convincing. You have a lot of criticism in, in, of uh, the social democratic parties for, um, I guess, for many things, but I think particularly for uh, coming up, not being inventive enough in sort of, thinking of alternatives to the free market ideology and the emphasis on property that came through uh, in the 80s. Um, and you also you sort of say that they became more elitist. They had less and less support from the working class. They abandoned the working class. Some would say they abandoned it because they also abandoned sort of national identity in favor of a sort of multiculturalism and a sort of a, le a more internationalist um, politics. Um, is that a risk in some of the things that you're talking about? That you're you're just you're allowing the whole concept of nationalism to be taken by the other side, and you're still talking about being more internationalist and putting having a more global outlook. Well, I'm talking about the different kind of internationalism that what we've had so far. You know, I think the nation state has, of course, been a very powerful force. You know, to build. Um, uh, national solidarity, to build a system of social insurance, to build system of progressive taxation. And, you know, this is where, uh, this is the political arena in which we've built more equality in the 20th century. And we've also built through uh, more equality, more prosperity, more mobility. So, the, the, you know, the, this construction have been very, very successful in particular in, with the rise of the uh, social state, uh, social nation state in, in, in Europe, in Germany, in Britain, in France, in, part, in particular. So, 
what I'm saying to the social democrats is, okay, if you want to go beyond that, uh, in particular, if you think we need uh, international uh, economic relation, which I think we need, because we also can benefit from trading with each other and not living in autarky within this nation state, then that's fine, of course. But then you need to think hard about how you organize this economic relation. And you cannot just organize them through Uh, free trade, uh, free capital flows without any common regulation, which is what has been done. And so that's why I propose a, a different form of international organization in the, in the book, which I call social federalism in the sense that uh, I think any group of countries, you know, even two countries, uh, you know, France and Belgium or France and Britain, uh, signing a treaty to organize a trade relation between them. Uh, uh, you know, this trade relation and the flow of capital or investment should come uh, after uh, some common objectives have been set in terms of social goals and reduction of inequality and common taxation if needed, uh, common, uh, uh, you know, labor law, common environmental goals. Otherwise... Isn't that what you've had with the European Union then? Well, no, not not really. You know, there's never been any common taxation, uh, for instance, in the European Union. So, in effect, the big winners of the of the European Union have been, uh, you know, the most mobile uh, economic groups. You know, uh, large corporations, uh, 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 individuals with uh, with uh, high uh, human capital or high financial capital who can uh, easily, uh, you know, benefit from uh, mobility and by putting uh, the different. Uh, governments in, in competition. So I think this has been a wrong model. So, so there, there's a need for complete rethinking uh, of this. Otherwise, you know, I think the, what I describe as the nationalist discourse, which is more the, 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 the nativist uh, discourse in, 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 in this case, will propose something else, which is basically, okay, we, we, we are going to be very tough on uh, migrants' identity. We don't need to have uh, any uh, redistribution through uh, progressive taxation between uh, you know, the rich and the poor and just uh, 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 sort of hardening the pure cultural conflict and identity conflict um, is going to be uh, our answer. And if there is no you know, other, uh, you know, other answer on the table, you know, I'm afraid this in, indeed you know, can win the day. It can win the day for a short while because in the end, you know, I don't think it will solve the problem in the long run. You know, the problem we have to solve, global warming, rising inequality, are not problems you're going to solve with pure uh, nationalism, retreat, and, and uh, more and more competition uh, between countries and no international cooperation. That, you know, if anything, that's going to exacerbate the, the problem. A lot of people felt that your proposals in the old book were kind of unrealistic, particularly when it comes to the taxation of wealth and inheritance, because, as we know, economists have, throughout the decades, have always said that a wealth tax had made sense and it was not very distortionary for various reasons, and yet it's something that has always come up against uh, political realities of you know, people wanting to pass to help their own children is a very kind of instinctive thing, and... Uh, that has translated into lower and lower inheritance taxes. Even just within countries, even if you're not trying to, if you're not managing to solve all of the sort of global problems of, of, mono, of where wealth goes and people not paying tax, do you see any scope? I mean, there are very few countries where you can see a real 
support for inheritance taxes. And if you don't have that, I don't see how you can do any of the things you're talking about. So I prefer wealth tax over inheritance tax. And in fact, wealth tax, annual wealth tax uh, are much more popular. You know, in every country, you can see a large majority support in favor of a billionaire tax or annual wealth tax. Uh, and, and I think there are good reasons why people prefer annual wealth tax or property tax on large property holders rather than inheritance tax. The, the, I think we need both, but I think the annual wealth tax will always be more important. And in fact, it's always been more important. If you look at property tax revenue uh, or wealth tax revenue you know, in the US or France or in other countries, it's always been a lot bigger than, than inheritance tax. Because The problem with inheritance tax is that in the end, you need to pay tax out of your annual um, income. Or if you don't have enough annual income, then you need to sell some of the property to pay the tax, which for you know many people is pretty frightening. Well, for people who would have a lot of wealth, you know, a million, you, know, you can sell part of it to pay the tax. But for people who have uh, only uh, limited assets and illiquid assets, they actually prefer to pay a small annual tax of one or two percent per year for 20 years, rather than a big inheritance tax of 30 or 40 percent right away. So I think it, there are good reasons why people perceive it this way. And, you know, the, the, the focus on inheritance tax rather than annual wealth tax, I think, is a, is a, is a, is a major uh, mistake, which has sometimes been made, but which I, I don't think I've made in the sense that I'm, I'm, I really stress uh, the annual uh, wealth tax much more. And, and you will see, if you look at uh, opinion polls about the billionaire tax, like in the U.S., you know, even Republican uh, voters uh, uh, are in favor of it. Uh, in France... Uh, Macron never had a majority of the public opinion to, to repeal the wealth tax. This was a decision of Macron. Uh, you know, certainly, his wealthy donors were in favor of it. But uh, if you look at the opinion polls, you know, he never got a majority for that. And I think it's, uh, it's part of the reason why he got into, into troubles, which is that he gave up a lot of money to a very small group of the population. At the same time, raise the tax on the, uh, you know, normal people paying uh, energy tax to, to go to work uh, every morning. And basically, the two sums of money were comparable. <laughs> the money you will get from the higher energy tax and the money gave up to the wealth taxpayers. And, and this is a big part of the explanation of the troubles in which is running to. So, yeah, I think there's a demand for fiscal justice, which takes different forms in different countries. But I think progressive wealth tax is part of the solution. Finally, I'm just I'm fascinated when you talk about, we, we started by talking about whether or not, uh, how important the World War I and World War II or you know, big events, de depression was in changing the way that people think and the assumptions people make. Um, do you think that the urgent environmental challenge uh, has the potential to cause that kind of, you know, throwing up of ordinary mm. relations? Um, in your direction, or is there a risk actually when you think of the steps that have to be taken? You know, increasing the cost of energy to households, many of whom are, are more spend a lot of their income on um, energy. Do you worry that actually a, a tackling climate change with the current system is actually going to make it less fair? Well, I, I think you know there are many different types of crises that can that can lead to a, to a very rapid change in the way we we perceive the economic system. So I think uh, you know climate change is one of them, and and uh, but there are you know you can have also more uh, you know social conflict in the future. You can have other financial crises. You know the 2008 financial crisis itself you know led to a complete change in a few years about the common views about monetary policy and you know suddenly the size of central bank balance sheet 
went all the way to the World War II, World War I level, or even higher in some cases, just in a space of a few years. So you have reactions to crises which are not always in the right direction. In this particular case, I'm not sure this was the right reaction or at least the only desirable reaction. But uh, what I mean is that you know there will be other crises in the future. Uh, the, the, the problem is that crises in themselves are not... Uh, you know, can be necessary to deliver change, but are never sufficient to deliver the right kind of change. And, and so in the case of climate change, there's a risk that uh, we don't think enough about the change in the economic system that we need uh, to put in place to solve both the climate problem and the, the inequality problem. So to, to be Concrete, you know, I don't see any way we can go toward lower uh, carbon emission uh, with the level of inequality we have uh, today. Because, you know, as I show in my in my, in my book, uh, you know, the top one percent in the world who have the highest level of carbon emissions, you know, emit more carbon than the bottom fifty percent of the world population. So if you don't start by tackling this, you know, you're missing a big part of the overall problem, and also you make it very difficult politically, you know, to make. Change in the lifestyle and, and, and way we use energy acceptable for the middle class and, 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 and the poor. So, you know, it could be that as uh, the consequences of climate change become more and more visible in Australia, in California, in different parts of the world, uh, the young generation in particular, you know, put a strong pressure on the political system to change uh, the economic system. Um, and, you know, there's a risk that it takes a long time before the consequences are sufficiently visible and striking that this itself is sufficient, is enough to deliver the change in perception. So I, my guess would be that the social crises and financial crises are more likely to be the driver uh, of change, but you know, it's, it, it can be a combination of all of this. In any case, we, we cannot just count on crises to deliver the right change. We, we need collectively to think about the, the change, you know, the structural change we want to bring to the, the system of properties, the system of education, the system of taxation, so that we don't rely at the last minute after the crisis on, you know, wrong solution or, or superficial solution like uh, printing money to solve the problem, for instance. Thomas Piketty, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that's all from this bonus edition of Stephanomics, which was edited and produced by Magnus Hendrickson and Scott Lamman. Scott is also the executive producer of Stephanomics, and Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts. We will all be back in April. <laughs>